Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 or at visiting angel the following program is sponsored by know the truth incorporated today on know the truth with philip de there's coming a day soon when we're going to share in the glory of the lord jesus christ and our bodies will be made new because we're going to be given a body like unto his glorious body and it's an encouragement as we take up our cross and you're going to dust off a little bruised and sore and you're going to put your cross back on and you're going to carry it for the glory of Jesus Christ that you submit to his purpose and will. heard the saying, no pain, no gain? Athletes train in sweat because they've got their eyes on the prize. But what motivates Christians to press through difficult trials? Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy reminds us that believers have a glorious hope that's worth pursuing no matter the cost. It's the final installment of Philip's message titled, Preview of Coming Attractions. And if you've missed any of the previous messages, you can listen at ktt.org. Now, let's get started. I've entitled the message, A Preview of Coming Attractions. And I think you'll understand the significance of that as we expound the text. Because in the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a sneak peek into the future. I like the words of Phil Moore, who says this in a comment on the Mount of Transfiguration. I love the Gospels. I love to worship the man Christ Jesus in the glory of his humanity. But to minister with authority, power, zeal, I need to worship him in the glory of his divinity. Unless we discover Jesus as he is today on the throne of heaven, we will merely worship him as he was yesterday, a heavily disguised itinerant teacher and healer. Ultimately, we will worship a shadow of the true Jesus and be guilty of idolatry. Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven. The suffering Savior is now the unrivaled ruler of creation. That's what these guys are getting to see. That's what we see in the book of Revelation, and that's what you need to keep in front of you. When the headlines are dark, when the results are small, when you look like we're part of a losing cause. I don't know if you know of Major General Claire Chennault brilliant pilot for the American Air Force during the war with Japan. He became known as the Flying Tiger of China. There was an encounter between him and Winston Churchill. He's at a particular banquet with him, and he looks across the table to this square-jawed officer, and he turns to his aide, and he said, who is that man? And the aide turns, and he says, that's Claire Chennault, the Flying Tiger of China. To which Churchill replies, what a face. What a face. I'm glad he's on our side. 
It seems to me I couldn't put it any better. I think Peter, James, and John would say, and anybody that's understood the book of Revelation, what a face. I'm glad he's on our side. And he's leading us in triumph. That's the heavenly vision. What about the heavenly visitors? Because intersecting with this manifestation of Christ's glory, if you go back to Mark chapter 9, we're told in verse 4 that Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. This is a physical appearing, a miraculous appearing of these two men. Now, I've got a question for you. Why these two? Why Moses and why Elijah? Why not Jeremiah and Isaiah? They're two big prophets, two massive figures in the Old Testament story. Let me give you three reasons why I think it is Moses and Elijah for good reason. Number one, if you study the story of Moses and Elijah, both of them saw the glory of God on a mountain. You can read about Moses' experience on Mount Sinai back in Exodus chapter 31, and you can read about Elijah's experience on Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19. So they're definitely a good fit for another mountain experience when the glory of God is now being put on display. Number two, one of them represents the law, and the other one represents the prophets. There was no bigger lawgiver than Moses. He received the Ten Commandments, and there's no bigger prophet than Elijah. Contemporary Judaism would agree. It's interesting, in Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy them. I came to fulfill them. And I think we can safely conclude that when someone talks about the law and the prophets, which is a phrase you'll find in the Gospels, we're talking about basically the whole of the Old Testament. So I would suggest to you that Elijah and Moses are two good choices because I think their presence is saying that he's the fulfillment of the law and he is the promised one of prophecy. What we're seeing in this is the whole of the Old Testament rising up to witness to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the fulfillment of the law and he is the completion of the prophets. And that's what you've got in the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, I was talking to a friend this week, interestingly, who's a friend of Alistair Begg, so we have a mutual friendship. And he was telling me that I think just recently Alistair was invited to speak at a synagogue. And he went with deference and tried to show respect to the context he was in. But he was wise enough and bold enough to begin his talk to this Jewish audience with these words, one of us is wrong and one of us is right. Does it end with the Old Testament? And do we await still some figure promised there to come? Or do we have in the New Testament what Moses spoke about and the prophets promised? And the Mount of Transfiguration would say, yes, we do. We've got that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't come to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. Here's a third reason. Both of these are eschatological figures. And remember, I've made an argument that the glory that Jesus will display, the glory of the Father with the holy angels at a second coming, some within the disciple band got to see why they were still alive. And I believe they got to see it in the transfiguration. So the transfiguration is an unveiling of the glory that will accompany Jesus Christ 
at his second coming when he's accompanied by holy angels. And Moses and Elijah are eschatological figures because in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, Moses said, there's one greater than me that's coming and you need to listen to him. And the father and I says, in the presence of Moses, listen to my son. And when he says that, the cloud lifts and Moses disappears because the greater than Moses has come. And you know what? The parallels are unmistakable with Moses. Clouds, mountains, the voice of God, the radiance. Now the old covenant is giving way to the new covenant. The greater Moses is here. And we're now on another mountain. And Jesus shows who he is and radiates even before the cloud comes. His is a reflected glory. It's innate to who he is. And the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son. Hear him. Stop talking, Peter. We had a problem with you just a few days ago when you rebuked my son who said he had to suffer. But the prophets and the law tells us he has to suffer. He's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's the new Moses, Peter. Listen, take up your cross, lay your life on the line. It will be worth it. Peter, stop talking. Start listening to the authoritative voice of my son. And look, folks, we have been given marching orders by our commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, who told us to go out into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all men, command them whatever he has taught them to do, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then call them to go back out into the world. That's what Jesus has called us to do, and we better be doing it. We better be listening to the heavenly voice because the heavenly vision tells us he's got the authority to command that. And the heavenly vision tells us whatever the implication of obeying him is in terms of cost, lack of popularity, or hardship, you listen and you do because in the end, it'll be worth it. So back to the point, heavenly visitors These are eschatological figures. Moses is and Elijah is because Malachi 4 verse 5 tells us that he will come prior to the great and terrible day of the Lord. And you'll see when they come down off the mountain, verse 9 following, the disciples will get into a bit of a discussion. Well, is it now the end times? Elijah has come and Jesus says, hey guys, the Elijah figure was John the Baptist. But these are significant days eschatologically. You're seeing elements of the kingdom, but the final and full form will come when I come in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. And I'm giving you a little bit of a sneak preview. So what we've got here is a dress rehearsal of the second coming. And that's why Moses and Elijah are so appropriate. So I think there's things here you probably haven't seen before. Or I want to give you some insight into. There are all kinds of prophetic insights here that are so interesting. Let's take five minutes and cover them. If this is a preview of coming attractions, I believe it is. If this is a window into the glory of the Father that will accompany Jesus when he's accompanied by holy angels at the second coming, the character of the kingdom, the makeup of the kingdom, the look of the kingdom, do we get any hints? One, I do. Number one, the transfiguration speaks to the physical nature of the kingdom. Everything about this is physical. See, there's an overrealized eschatology that's infecting the church today that denies the literalness of the millennial kingdom and the physical nature of the millennial kingdom that will come in the future when I believe Jesus will literally sit on David's throne in a literal Jerusalem on planet earth. And the transfiguration takes place 
on a locality that's physical on planet Earth within Israel. And I don't want to make too much of that, but at least I see that this is a physical location and it's tied into a preview of the kingdom. We don't need to over-realize our eschatology. We don't need to spiritualize what can remain physical. Number two, it speaks to the coming enduring glory of the future kingdom. The disciples got a taste of it, and it was so tasty, so appetizing, that Peter falls into the trap of thinking, this is it? Why does he suggest three booths for Moses, Jesus, and Elijah? Because if you go to Zechariah 14, 16, when Jesus comes again, when the Messiah comes at a second time, it'll be around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And Peter's kind of going, all right, I can stay here. I can set up shop here. Do we have to go down to the valley and meet a father with a demonized son? We've got to get back into spiritual warfare and prayer and fasting. I'll stay up here, Lord. Let's make some booze and, you know, let's ring in eternity. Right idea, Peter. Wrong time. So what we have in this is a glimpse of a coming glory that will endure when it comes. This is temporary, but the coming kingdom will endure. In fact, if you just take the rapture alone of the church, we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, and we will always be with the Lord. It's wonderful. Uninterrupted fellowship, unbroken joy. Thirdly, it speaks to knowing each other in heaven, to knowing each other in heaven. I mean, it's interesting that Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. And Matthew and Luke tell us they talk about his departure, his death. And it's interesting, I don't know how, but one would assume that Peter is given an innate ability to recognize that's Moses and Elijah. And he would like to sit down, that's all Bill Bowes here, and let's talk. And look, it's just a passing comment. We don't need to make a mountain out of a hill, but I'm often asked, will we know each other in heaven? Well, I think so. I don't think you get dumber in the next life. I think you become more than you are. Your faculties are better. They're more finely tuned. In fact, we'll maybe know ourselves better than we've ever known ourselves before. And we at least get a glimpse here that there is an innate knowing of each other. There'll be no strangers in heaven, is how my friend Mark Hitchcock puts it in one of his prophetic books. No strangers in heaven. Here's another thing. It speaks to the dead being conscious of the living. Now, Mark doesn't give us this. But Matthew and Luke give us this idea that they knew about Jesus' impending departure. And I don't know whether they brought to witness to that fact and encouraged the Lord Jesus, but there's this sense of they knew what was coming next. Now, I don't want to overread that. Don't want to overread that. But I want to assume from that that to a large degree, in the broad strokes of what God is doing on the earth, those in heaven are somewhat cognizant of what's happening on earth. Now, we don't want to extrapolate from that and buy into Catholic theology where you pray to the dead who seem to be aware of what you're going through. And the worst form of that is Mary who seems to be omniscient and can take millions of people's prayers at the same time and know all that's going on. That's a horrendous doctrine. But broadly speaking, the saints in heaven seem to know what's going on on earth. So don't overread it. Now, Hopefully I can say it in a way not to upset anybody. Because I hear Christians talk about this like, you know what, I lost a loved one, but I can feel they're not far away. Be careful with that nonsense there. There's, there's no sense that they're close to us in that sense. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. 
You know, your grandfather's not hovering about 30 feet above your soccer pitch on a Saturday, taking it all in. Again, don't be offended. I'm just trying to get the point across. But I think the saints in heaven are generally aware of what God is going to do next in relation to the church and the kingdom. In fact, you see that in Revelation 6, where they're crying out for God's vengeance because of the martyred saints. It seems when Samuel is brought back, and he's part of that sad incident in Saul's life, he seems to be aware of some things that are going on under Saul and the reign within Israel. So just take that for what it's worth. Don't do too much with it other than, you know, I think we'll know each other. And I think that the saints in heaven have a general idea of what's going on on earth. A couple of things quickly. Time's gone. Here's an interesting part to this. These two have had sudden departures in their life. Their end is very interesting. Go to Deuteronomy 34 and you'll see that Moses doesn't enter the promised land and he is buried by God and no one knows where his burial plot is. Now Elijah, he doesn't die. He's translated. He goes to heaven in a chariot of fire, kind of surrounded by the glory of God. One dies and one is translated. Does that ring a bell with anybody? What about 1 Thessalonians 4? When the Lord Jesus comes for his church and he calls us to the air to meet him in the clouds, the dead will rise and the living will be translated. Do you not get harbingers and hints of that in Moses' death and then Elijah's translation? And we're starting to build a case. Friends, there's coming a day soon when we're going to share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see his glory. We're going to reflect his glory. We're going to be admired with him among the saints. We're going to know each other. We're going to know as we are known. The dead will rise. The living will be translated. And we're going to meet the Lord where? In the air, in the clouds. Where did Moses and Elijah and Jesus and the disciples meet each other? In the Shekinah cloud. First time in 600 years, the Shekinah cloud had overshadowed the earth again. And it seems to me that we're going to be called up into the clouds. Could be Shekinah clouds. We're going to be caught up and overshadowed by the clouds, the glory of the Lord Jesus, and our bodies will be made new. The dead will be resurrected. We're going to be instantly translated and glorified, and we're going to be with the Lord. And you've got that going on because what we see in Jesus is what we're going to see in ourselves because we're going to be given a body like unto his, what? Glorious body. That doesn't mean we're going to be deified, but it means our resurrected bodies are going to display the glory and the power of God in resurrection manifestation. It's all here, and it's an encouragement as we take up our cross and we pay the price of obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, whatever that means locally, globally, and the thing that's going to get you up and you're going to dust off your shoulder, a little bruised and sore, and you're going to put your cross back on and you're going to carry it for the glory of Jesus Christ as you submit to his purpose and will. The thing that's going to sustain you is that vision of him and his triumphant, glorious power, and this vision that there is a glory being shown here that we're going to enter into. 
that following the suffering will come the glory. Read 1 Peter. And again and again, Peter will make mention of that. 18 times he will mention suffering. 16 times he will mention glory. This experience left a mark on Peter and it allowed him to die a martyr's death. It allowed him to march across the known world despite his own fears and the troubles that come the way of God's people living out the will of God. But he was sustained by this thought, someday glory for me where I'll meet him in the cloud and I'll be glorified and I'll have a new body and I'll reign with him and I'll be a joint heir with him. And all the saints of all the ages will enter into that. And whatever the pain, whatever the price, that will all melt away because in the end it will be worth it. In the end we win. I've told you this story before, but it just seems fitting that at a seminary in the gym, there were several seminarians that were playing a game of basketball, a little pickup game. And as they're coming off the court, they look and they see the janitor waiting to come on to clean the floor. And they see him reading his Bible in the meantime, and they say, hey, what are you reading? Oh, he said, the book of Revelation. And one of the students said, that's a tough book to understand. The old janitor in the simplicity of his faith says, no, it's not. In the end, we win. And that's true. That's where the book begins. Some of the stuff in between is a little hard to get your head around, but we can make sense of it if we take a literal interpretation. But that aside, where does the book begin? It begins with an unveiling of the one who now sits at the right hand of God, who's now at the right hand of the majesty on high, who's amidst his church, and his face shines like the sun, just like the Mount of Transfiguration. And time will pass. And we mustn't become loveless. And we mustn't become sexually compromised. And we must be faithful to doctrine. Read his words that must be obeyed to the churches. He that has an ear, let him hear. This is my son. Hear him. And as we live out the teaching of the seven churches, we live it out in the knowledge that Christ has been enthroned on high, but someday soon he's coming to be enthroned on David's throne, and there'll be a glory about it, there'll be magnificence about it, and his glory will fill the earth as the waters fill the sea, and we're going to reign with him. So folks, pick up your cross and join me in another day's march. Another day's march nearer home. Amen. Lord, we pray you'll hide this word, the glorious vision of our glorious Lord, and may the magnificence of it, the glory associated with it, may it move us forward. May it help us to find a second wind. May it cause us to embrace greater discipleship and commitment to Jesus Christ, knowing that in the end we win. In the end, we want to hear that well done, good and faithful servant. In the end, we don't want to be ashamed of our life, nor do we want him to be ashamed of us because we didn't stand up for him. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're listening to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy, and you can listen to more messages on this subject when you browse the sermon archives at ktt.org. Well, we all want to be found faithful to our Savior at any hour on any day, but sometimes we get overcommitted and even burned out from ministry. And that's not God's plan. He doesn't want us to be so busy that we never have time to rest and recover. In fact, when we look at Jesus' life, he was very intentional about taking time off and getting away. And for one last day, we're offering a new booklet on this very topic by Philip DeCourcy titled, Handling the Pressure. 
Philip looks at several instances in the Gospels where Jesus either got into a boat with his disciples to get away, went into a secluded place, or he even took a nap. Let this booklet give you biblical guidance for a wise and balanced life. Supplies are going fast, so be sure to request the booklet today when you make a generous donation to Know the Truth. As you read this biblical study, you'll be encouraged to plan needed rest into your schedule so you can actually be more effective as a follower of Christ. Give a donation and request Philip's booklet titled, Handling the Pressure, when you call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. And if you prefer to send your donation by mail, you can write to us at Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. You can also request Handling the Pressure when you become a Truth Ambassador. Your monthly gift will keep Philip's bold teaching here on this station, proclaiming much-needed truth like we're hearing today. Become a Truth Ambassador by calling 888-644-8811 or sign up online at ktt.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd, wishing you a great weekend and be sure to come back next week as we continue the Essential Jesus series. Be listening Monday to Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. doesn't mess around. If they want your money, they'll take it. They can take your paycheck and bank accounts too, even threaten your home or business. And it's about to get worse. The IRS just hired an army of new tax enforcers. So, if you owe back taxes, the smartest thing you can do is call Optima Tax Relief. Optima has access to a special IRS tax assistance program called the Fresh Start Initiative. And their clients that qualify are saving thousands, even tens of thousands. One call starts the process to stop the demand letters. Stop aggressive collection actions and stop that army of new enforcers from targeting you. But don't delay. It's important to act now while you still have options. Optima is A-rated with the Better Business Bureau. Optima has already resolved over a half billion dollars of tax debt for their clients. Get your life back. Call now for your free consultation. Call 800-711-5743. 800-711-5743. 800-711-5743. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. It's long. 